Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I am your co-host, Christopher Mukigana Harrington. Join from the state of New York himself, the Empire Saint, Mr. Brandon Howard Thurston. Brandon, how are you doing today? I'm the Patriot State Empire Saint. Well, that rhymes. Look at that. I didn't even plan that. But I'm here. I wrestled last night in Erie, Pennsylvania. It was a good time. I'm sore. I've been rubbing my trap here the whole time we've been doing our pre-show meeting. But, uh, the trapezius muscle has oh, been, been exercised? Yes, it has. I've been doing a lot of cardio. I've been going on Milserian reflective bike rides many days of the week. But I, yeah. And uh, some of your students from Grapplers Anonymous, I, I saw a, a pretty crazy uh, uh, gif of one of them. German suplexing oh. uh, the, the, the man with the uh, flying pounce. Uh, maybe you can uh, narrate who I'm talking about. No, you're confused. <laughs> you, you saw Daniel Garcia German su- suplex Puff. Puff is not yes. Ace Romero. Uh, oh, that was Puff who was getting... Uh, yeah. Uh, good goodness. So those are both your students then, right? Daniel Garcia and Puff? D- Daniel and Puff are both from, from Grapplers, yeah. Yeah, wow. And uh, so, yeah, that was a crazy, crazy uh, image there that I saw. But uh, and you had some students doing some uh, pre-show work, maybe for that that ROH show that came through Buffalo for Ring of Honor. One of the referees who we, we trained did some Ring of Honor extra work, and other people that escaped me. I'm sorry, I forget who they were, but yeah, I, th- I think they're like they're seen in the background of uh, if you happened to watch the live uh, stream of the Buffalo show on s- Friday night, they were they were there doing some extra work. Yeah, security. So stuff. they they're the ones that went in and took out Cody Rhodes' knee. Yeah, I, I heard that they were the ones who were like, hey, are you okay? And he's like, no, I, I tore my knee. All right, I don't know what he said. Don't quote me. But yeah, I guess he uh, injured his knee throwing a t-shirt or something. Wow. He's been studying under the tutelage of Mr. Kevin Nash, and apparently it's finally paid off. Yeah, well, you have to be careful doing housework. That I know for sure. <laughs> Could I throw out your shoulder do, throwing garbage over? Yeah. A lot of different things can happen to you. Well, this is WrestleNomics Radio. It is uh, November 11th, 2018. It is Veterans Day. So, uh, Brandon, as a veteran, I want to thank you for your service. Thanks. And uh, just say it's also my wife's birthday. So we uh, had lots of wife birthday things today. And this weekend, my wife got sworn in as a lawyer. So she uh, had a private ceremony and and the judge she clerks for swore her in. And so she is now officially a, a lawyer as well. So yeah. we finally have uh, the ability to commit all the misdemeanors we want. That's right. That's how it works, right? That's the that's what that uh, Kevin Owens and Vince McMahon promo taught us. But yeah, congratulations to to Alyssa. She, so now you, we can actually say that your wife is a lawyer. Yes, she is no longer past the bar. She's no longer a law student. She's yeah. no longer someone just with legal training. That's right. Uh, I can actually say she is a a upstanding member of of the lawyers of America, and she promises not to take lucre. Do you know what lucre is? Oh, I think I looked that word up recently, but I forget. It is part of the oath that you promise that you will not take lucre. And uh, uh, if I said it was connected to the word lucrative, you would Uh, probably be able to guess what it means. Money. Money. Money, especially money for like illicit deeds or misdemeanors. I kind of feel like the whole time we did the Saudi Arabia stuff, I should have been referring it to it as their their lucre. I think you uh, did. I think that's why I looked that word up. Yeah. So now you you think that's why you, you heard the word? I think you did use it. Yeah, so, so now whenever we do Mookie's legal update, which is usually on WrestleNomics Premium, which you can only get through patreon.com slash WrestleNomics, I want you to introduce each segment with my wife is a lawyer and here, you know, and then start doing all your legal analysis. Money, especially when regarded as sordid or distasteful or gained in a dishonorable way. I definitely am going to say that the Saudi Arabia money is an example of lucre. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, yes, I will introduce the shows that way. You go to WrestleMimics.com. You can find our um, our free show. You can find the premium show. Or you can head over. We're going to have to add a link to the re- uh, the Reddit page that we've been doing here. Reddit slash r slash russellnomics and uh, every week i i start a couple threads and some of those threads are going to be things that we're going to talk about on the show here today including an interview with stephanie mcmahon from the web summit and uh, paul paul levesque actually did an interview with them about eight months ago uh which is up as well and uh i've been meaning to watch that and and do more about that maybe we'll follow up another episode we have an interview with mr harold may in the language of english yes that was recently um Posted at the Up Rocks with Spandex blog uh, by, is it Emily Pratt who did the interview? Yes, Emily Pratt. Uh, and this is in English, not translated from Japanese to English, but actually in English to begin with. I think this is the and, first uh, interview of, of any length that I know of yeah. with Harold May in English. So it's, I'm excited. It's going to talk about finances. It's going to talk about philosophy. It's going to talk about history. It's going to talk about theory and reality. So that's good. And then we're going to talk a little bit about Linda McMahon. Um, connecting her to some of the stories in the news recently. And over on the premium show, we've got a lot of stuff. We're going to talk about ROH coming up in a conference call. We're going to talk about MLW. We're going to talk about Naito. Uh, we're going to talk about overruns with WWE and the WWE Network showing up. I got a Wall Street Journal article about Netflix. We got WWE Stock, WWE Jobs. And, of course, presented by the affairs of Ms. Harrington Esquire, The Legal Update. For this month where, um, you know, you know, what inspired one of the legal updates this month was from your friend and mine. Oh, uh, a Mr. Uh, DJ Jarka. Yeah, our, 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 our friend, listener and independent professional wrestling referee, DJ Jarka. Yes, he asked me about somebody. Yes. I went looking up to see what happened with this guy and I uncovered a brand new development of a WWE lawsuit that was here be nunced unknown. Yeah. Not only that, it's happening in Minnesota. Can you believe that? Yeah, he messaged me and he sent me the link to, to the article from like 2010. And he's like, does, does Mookie follow the, the indie scene in Minnesota? Do you think he knows what's going on with this? And I said, he probably doesn't, but send this to him. He'll be amused. Yeah, so I knew what he was talking about. I knew about Dale Gagner. Mm-hmm. But um, I did not know that in October of 2018, WWE sued him again. Ooh. And that's what we're going to talk about on the premium show is how Dale is not dead. Dale is back to his old ways because of uh, an online store he set up, and WWE is not pleased. So it's it's happening in Minnesota. In fact, next week, if I really wanted, I could go to the courthouse. I could probably see WWE lawyers there, but I, I don't think Jerry's coming into town. If if I thought Jerry would be, I would probably make the trip <laughs> just yeah. to, to come up and say, hey, Jerry, how's it going? You would arrange a dinner date with him and just get together and have a chat. Oh, I don't know about that. But I think, you know, one of the Bruce Pritchard shows, I think they had Jerry show up and just tell stories all the time. And I was kind of like, I would have gone to a Bruce Pritchard show if I knew Jerry McDivitt was showing up and telling stories the whole time. Like the live shows, Jerry McDivitt showed up at one of the, one of the, one of Bruce Pritchard's yeah. live. Really? Wow. Yeah, like, like there's pictures of like Jerry McDivitt there at like a show and like just him talking. I don't know if they recorded this episode or not. Wow. Like, I don't listen to enough Pritchard shows to know. So if you're a super listener... Please let me know if there's really like a Jerry McDivitt audio one out there where I can like listen to the stories. But yeah, there was like pictures one time where like it was Conrad, Jerry, and Bruce. Wow. Maybe you have <laughs> to send enough a, a FOIA like, request. I would have to hear gone that. to that show in a heartbeat. That sounds fascinating to me. Yes. You and Bix would get VIP 
tickets for that. <laughs> I don't know. We'd get we'd get special seats for sure. I don't know whether they'd be VIP or they'd be the do. We'd be in the Acosta section where you're not allowed to ask any questions or go to the briefing anymore. Yes, yeah, so you would get VIP uh, guillotine seats, maybe. I don't know. Something like that. Yeah. But uh, first, let's start off with Stephanie McMahon. So Steph on uh, November eighth, I think is when this might have gone up. Um, she did an interview, uh, for this thing called the web summit. And I don't know a thing about what this program is. All I know is that it's called five ways to build a global sporting brand has about 2,200 views. It was published on November 6, 2018. And it's Stephanie McMahon and a CNBC hostess named, uh, Elizabeth Schultz. Um, and, uh, that's the way they say it in the, the, the show. I, I'm not familiar with her otherwise, but um, the Web Summit, I'm just trying to find here what it is. Uh, the final day of the Web Summit had a guy from Shell, had UFC's pa- Paige Van Sant, um, had Imager, had a lot of just rat- major laser showed up. There's a lot of random people at this thing. Um, but anyway, so this was Stephanie being interviewed. And uh, it's about a 20-minute interview. Um, I'd put it in the middle. Like there's some calls where like George does it and I'm like, wow, you got to listen to this. And there's some that you're like, this is absolute fluff. There's nothing to this. Don't even bother. This is right in the middle. She doesn't say anything in my mind that is a revelation about WWE, but she goes in depth on two or three little things that I think are a little bit different. And then she gets starts Disney starts coming up a lot in this. Um, and I think that's really important is that was the big takeaway. I know CBR wrote an article about that um, crediting wrestling Inc all about this uh, piece, but um, we're going to listen to a couple trend, a couple audio cues. um, And then we're going to just talk about each one of them. So the very first one was uh, about three and a half minutes in Uh, Stephanie basically comes out. They play a sizzle video as, as they say. And then the first question from Mm. the journalist uh, to the credit credit. to her is you just ran an event in Saudi Arabia. Tell me about the decision to do that. And I think we're going to pick it up right around there event that happened over the weekend, which is the crown jewel. I'm just going to kick it off with something that maybe a lot of people here have heard about when it comes to WWE. And that was an event that you held in Saudi Arabia. Talk a little bit about the decision to hold that event there over the weekend. Well, it was an incredibly difficult decision for our company. Um, We were trying to weigh all of the different factors and ultimately made a business decision, you know, based on contractual obligations and decided to go in. Um, much the way other American companies are still doing business, uh, and we held our event. And WWE's global presence. And you can stop it there. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the words very, very reminiscent of what was said on the Q3 call. Uh, incredibly difficult decision. Mm-hmm. So whoever's in charge of marketing kind of wrote down those words in big cue cards and said, make sure you say these three words each time. And then he says, we were trying to weigh all the different factors and ultimately made a business decision, you know, based on the contractual obligations and decided to go um, much in the way other companies are still doing business. We held the event. Yeah. No talk of uh, we're going to lead social change or that, you know, we went over there and we're just taking steps and, hey, hey remember in Dubai, uh, this is hope they chanted during Sasha Banks and Alexa Bliss. And by the way, Renee Young was, we, they actually allowed us to bring Renee Young there and do commentary. She didn't mention that. I don't know if that well, would be in their interest too. She, but... she brings it up later. Oh, does she? She does. Okay. Yeah, I did listen a little to this, later but in I don't there. She says, okay. really, the two biggest outcomes, one more recent than the other, in Abu Dhabi almost a year ago, we yeah. had female performers. They were allowed to perform in the ring for the first time ever. They had to change their gear. You know, they only had their 
hands and their head they could show. But their match broke out and chanted both the arena of both men and women saying, this is hope. Uh, and so she brings it up later. Honestly, I'm glad she didn't try to use the Renee thing as a fig leaf. Because I think that would have been more despicable to try to be like, no, look, we brought a woman. Isn't that amazing? We brought a woman. Yeah. Like, that's still pretty bad to, like, pretend like that's that's going to defend your practice of doing this. And again, I, what I, what this goes back to is the same thing I said when we had the Sky interview with Stephanie. And she said almost the exact same thing. Basically, this proves that WWE is not concerned about the host of allegations against Saudi Arabia that came before the Khashoggi um, murder and dismemberment. They're not worried about the inequity, the the, the uh, jailing of dissidents, the war in Yemen, the uh, uh, other influence campaigns and things that have happened. You know, the article today in the New York Times about how Saudi Arabia had brought in uh, businesses to try to figure out if they could help people help create disinformation campaigns in Iran and possibly assassinate people. And uh, when they asked one of the businessmen about it, he said, I'm going to have to talk to my lawyer. And the lawyer basically said, no, you are not allowed to take business obligations to assassinate people. Yeah. So, um, and, and as you mentioned on Twitter, uh, maybe that's the, the businesses that they were referring to are still doing business with Saudi Arabia, just like they are. Yeah. And, and you know, the other thing that came up this week is that uh, one of the people who was jailed in the corruption probe from uh, the the action from MBS a few months ago, he was recently just kind of resurfaced and released. Um, let's see what action what from MBS the, you, are you talking about? The, the Khashoggi. I'm talking murder? about billionaire the uh, Prince Walid bin Talat, mm -hmm. uh, WBT, uh, who was like basically the other very public face for global investors and whatnot for many times. He was jailed as part of the corruption or you know oh. taken out of the limelight for a period of time the hotel here. imprisonment pardon me, hotel imprisonment exactly yeah. so it was a uh, very interesting to see that he's back and now trying to reaffirm all the investors that no everything's fine and the mbs is doing a great job and everything's great so um it was just kind of interesting so yeah the, i i give credit to them for starting off the interview by at least grilling them a little bit about it you know they let it go i gotta say this interview is called five ways to build a global sporting brand at no point did I feel like there was five ways actually listed out to me. Um, if you hunt and peck through the article the way I did, I think I could assemble her list of five things, but I don't really know what they were. Um, but there was some interesting other points, like just short of the eight minute mark, um, in the middle of a, a whole section where she had talked all about, um, uh, she had gone through the whole Ronda Rousey Olympic story that we heard at TMZ, which was really interesting to hear Stephanie McMahon bringing it up because it makes you very much see how coordinated this company is with stuff. Uh, you know, like sometimes people think like these TMZ interviews are somehow off the cuff. But at the same time, Stephanie McMahon is out there giving Ronda's exact story at a conference a few days later. That tells something to me about the coordination in this company, about the messaging that they wanted to put out. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to talk about, you know, WWE superstars being multifaceted and they act and they do all this stuff. And then uh, Stephanie starts talking a little bit more about Paul Levesque's global localization. It is rare to find someone who has that capability. That, that's why we don't have more superstars, though we do have um, a strategy that we're using called global localization, where we are looking at recreating all of our performance centers um, all over the world. So we just launched um, in, in, in the UK, it's called NXT UK. And uh, we're, we're testing the model there and we're hoping to grow it all over the world. Because again, localization is so important. 
Um, but then that will ladder up into the, the bigger broad-based bands. I think that brings So there up. we go. So that that's her vision. And um, it's interesting to hear NXT UK kind of symbolize that way because do they actually have a performance center set up in the UK yet? No. Yeah, so it's it's interesting to call this, you know, we're recreating our performance center. What they've done is they've recreated a tiny bit of the touring model of the NXT brand is what I, I'm seeing. And then they, they've also recreated the ability to show it on the network. They, they've created a, a brand that's like to, I think, to capitalize on the energy that's going on in, in the indie scene, in, the, in this case in the UK, right, to, to bring whatever star power or whatever talent is emerging in the UK and to, and to say, this is the, the WWE section of it. And then we're going to get these people ready to be passed on to our other brands like NXT 205 live or main roster. And, um, if you are a premium WrestleNomics supporter, you can even read the transcript of this whole um, piece here. I've edited it together, um, based on the YouTube transcript that was provided and turned it into a, a document. And so you, you will have access to that along with the notes from the show. But I thought that was interesting. Um, just that we've heard what global localization is supposed to be. And I was kind of curious about, is it meant to be a minor feeding system into the rest of the performance center? Or is it meant to be a replication of the whole thing? And the way Stephanie talks about it here, you'd think it, it's, you know, PC times two. It's another Orlando or another Tampa. But the reality is we're still pretty far away from that. Yeah, and, and we, we didn't play the question that was asked to her to set up that answer, right? Which is the, the interviewer asking, you know, where does the talent come from? Uh, what was the question? When it comes to W talent, how is the talent both performing and also sort of playing a role in, in, as a business person, uh, as an athlete? How do you balance all these things? Like a, a lot of their, their talent, it's it's the thing that Triple H glosses over in the Business Partner Summit too, right? Where he puts AJ Styles on the screen as like one of their developed talents who's, who's debuting at the Royal Rumble. Like a lot of their talent is coming from the Indies, and uh, they're they're trying to. I think the th NXT UK um, and and the way that NXT has grown in the last three four years is a response to to the way that independent wrestling is able to cultivate stars who go on to WWE. And yeah, it's it's so funny when you see how many of those stars come from the Indies. Like I just watched the formerly known as series um, where, you know, they, they go back to a wrestler's kind of background. And it was about um, Ruby Riot. And on the Indies, she used to be known as, as Heidi Lovelace. Yes. And she came from Indiana. And it, it's her basically going to an Elks Lodge and talking about how she started there. And she dropped out of college. And then she she hooked up with a um, a trainer and basically moved to town where he was and they trained out of the back of like a um, kind of like a rental unit place, you know, like a storage unit place. And it was very similar to the schools that I've seen in, in Rochester and in, in Buffalo and other places where it's, it's, you know, not really having heat and light and you're just kind of opening the door and, and doing it there. And it was one of those things where I was just like, even someone like Ruby Riot. Yeah. She came through NXT and they, they helped craft her, but she took a lot of initiative on her own to get there by all the steps she took in the years leading up to becoming a WWE superstar. And uh, among that's the people. very, very many of those people that are like that. There's very few that came in cold. Yeah, among the people business. they signed recently, she's one of the first, she's the one of the fastest to get to NXT TV, I would say. From, from yeah. signing to NXT TV debut, it was very quick for her. And, and it just goes to show that, like, you know, a lot of these people aren't coming in cold. Yeah. Uh, Katsy from, um, uh, the, uh, America Ninja Warrior, 
she's a good example of someone coming in cold. Braun Strowman came in cold. Yeah. But a lot of the other people, you know, they have these extensive backgrounds. And that's my favorite series, honestly, that that they do as a web series is all these FKA ones where you can see, you know, Kevin Steen, you go see his dad and talks about going to the video store to rent rent movies, you know, things like that, or or the Luke Harper one or all the other ones. I, I find those fascinating. And that's actually, I think, one of the most endearing things. And that's one of the scariest things about what it is in this performance center culture is this idea that sometimes we're blurring the lines between are you really giving people an opportunity to succeed and become their own or are you just kind of capitalizing on the gains that other people did already and are you still leaving a system that works and it makes you wonder about what's the relationship between evolve and wwe and that was a question one of our listeners asked us and i was going to ask you brandon what do you think the relationship is between evolve and wwe and gate sapolsky i think gabe has some sort of job with wwe as a producer for nxt and he's being paid by WWE, I think. And uh, and that, I don't know that WWE's giving Evolve or WN, it's uh, the parent company of Evolve, money. Maybe they are because they're kind of doing a service for for WWE, especially as like, it's, it's I think it's very much as what uh, I think Loss from Pro Wrestling Only said a few years ago now, is that one day you're just going to wake up and it's going to be Triple H's world. And that, that's kind of what's happening here. And, and by that, I mean like, a few years ago, it would be unconscionable to think that you're going to have W contracted wrestlers on Evolve shows. And then eventually there's, you know, there's some sort of relationship formed. And then eventually they let like Sami Zayn do a meet and greet during intermission, not allowed on the, on the eye pay-per-view. They let William Regal do the same thing. And now, you know, gradually they took these little steps so that it wasn't this big story or whatever. But now all of a sudden you've got Cassius Ono appearing and wrestling on, uh, on Evolve and you've got, um, wasn't the Who's tag, the tag team, team titles the... go to NXT team? Yeah. Uh, what's the tag team name? Look how, how oh. what great commentators we are of uh, professional wrestling in modern times here. Um, but just the idea um, that, that, you know, that, that we bridge that gap and what exactly what that relationship is. And I think it, it's exactly that where street profits. It with street talent. profits. There we go. Okay. Anyway, go ahead. What, what the, the, the something street profits street profits is, is the tag team I was thinking of. Yeah. And so it's interesting uh, just seeing how that that's working together. It makes me wonder, will Sapolsky run one of these, you know, global localizations sometime where they'll send him overseas to kind of be one of the people to help produce or in one of these countries someday. Yeah, and again, possible. I'm always curious about the, the nature of these contracts that when you go to country to country, you're not always dealing with the same legal system when it comes to employment law and employment rights. You know, I was just talking, I went out yesterday to um, uh, dinner with a, a professor of Japanese law, oddly enough. Not a Japanese one thing he, Japanese law, okay. One thing he mentioned is that in Japanese law, it basically says, if there's a conflict, both sides agree to basically negotiate and amicably resolve it. And the idea that we have in US law, where it basically says, here's how we're going to resolve something, is unheard of to them. Like, it's, it's blasphemous to them that we might say, no, if there's a conflict between me and you, this contract is the answer of who who's right and wrong. Where in Japanese law, they just say, no, it, it, the contract just says we both have to agree, basically, that we'll, we'll come out together on it. And so he was just like, what's the point of a contract if it says that? But uh, it was very funny when he was just like, Japanese people might actually have a hard time with American business contracts at times. Yeah, I, mean, I think we'll talk a little bit about something in that neighborhood when we uh, talk about what Harold May uh, said in his interview. Yes, yes, we will. But um, that was just, I just thought it was interesting to hear a little bit more of this global global localization. 
that's the term they're using. That's the term to add to your Google alerts. That's the term to start looking for if you want to understand what's happening with the NXT expansion around the world. Yeah, and um, I, I think what people want want to wonder when they hear stuff like this is why don't they just say, you know, yeah, we're getting people from the Indies who have some experience. I know Triple H kind of touches on it in some of his NXT conference calls, but why not just acknowledge the reality as it is? Maybe maybe Stephanie McMahon just doesn't doesn't understand it that way and doesn't believe it to be that way. But but like, why don't they just say, you know, yes, some of some of our talent. Uh, ends up being like Charlotte Flair and Alexa Bliss and Braun Strowman. We train them from scratch at our facility, but but some of them uh, have experience from elsewhere, and they're able to really enrich our product as well. Why not just say that rather than? I guess like this isn't meant for fan consumption, obviously, right? This is meant for business people consumption. But to sit here and listen to this is kind of insulting to our intelligence, isn't it? To sit to think that like, oh yeah, we just produce everybody from the performance center. I guess it's the same reason Harvard Business School will say. We want you to mention you're a Harvard Business School graduate. We don't want you to make a big deal about where you went to under, undergraduate. But I went is to a that, really great community college, you see. Yeah. And so that's what I think it is, is. I think it's basically they want people to say, I went to Harvard, and they don't care where you went to undergraduate. I, 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 I have more trust, though, that Harvard Business School is as good as it's supposed to be compared to the community <laughs> college than I am about the differences between the PC and, and, a, and a good indie wrestler's indie, indie experience. We are reaching that point where we can begin to evaluate the performance level of this model versus other models they've taken and compare it and contrast it to the performance level of what you're getting out of things like the new Japan dojo system, both domestically and abroad, or for them, domestically is Japan and abroad is the, the LA dojo. Mm -hmm. But we, we do have that ability to start comparing because I think for years and years, it was a little too early to really say, is NXT paying off or not? But we've now given them enough years that you can say, yeah, if I put someone in the system three years ago, they should graduate. They should be capable. If they can't work out after three years, there's a there's a challenge to what exactly are you you doing with their time there? Because that seems like a long time, especially when we go back to the 80s and we look at how long some of these guys had been in the business. By the time you see them on TV, you'd be shocked to discover how few months some of these guys had before they actually made it up on, on television and were working and some of them being very good workers very quickly. Yeah. Um, so this next section um, talked a little bit about data analytics, my favorite two words when it comes to WWE uh, 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 presentations and uh, it Disney starts showing up here. And so I, I'm curious if this is just one of those like themes that just happened to emerge in this talk and it has nothing to do with that was planned or if this is WWE's new talking line. So we'll find out. Data and analytics provide you the platforms to, to watch their, their usage patterns. Um, you know, we are currently in WWE building, you know, we're a little bit behind Netflix, et cetera, but we are building, you know, what looks like a honeycomb model looking, because WWE's business model is really more akin to Disney. We have live events, we have WWE studios, we have digital and social media, we have our advanced media group, all of our superstars, their own individual IP. Um, I'm going around our, our brand wheel in my head, but all of those are different data points. And data and analytics are so important to us to help super serve our audience. But not only those touch points, we also have over 550 live events all over the world every year. We have, in essence, a unique focus group, you know, almost every single night of the year telling us what they like and what they don't like and, and what they don't care about, <laughs> which is important to know, too. So, I, I, again, WWE Business Model is more akin to Disney. And then the next thing they mention is WWE Studios, my uh, my favorite punching bag uh, for money making. 
And then later on, they talk about, you know, the fact that they have the unique focus group, the live events. And of course, they what do they want to do to the audience, Brandon? They want to super serve them. Yes. the This talk did not have the word reimagine anywhere in it that I could see. Did it not? I'm going to do a quick check here. The word reimagine was not in there. So uh, uh, Stephanie's still on last year's cue cards uh, because we're not super serving anything. We're reimagining our entire experience right now. Maybe that's on the drawing board for the name for the new tier, the, the extra super serve tier or something yeah. like that. But, I, you know... Again, you could make the sarcastic comment about, well, your unique focus group seems to be getting smaller and smaller every time you look at it uh, in the last year here. Isn't that concerning? Are you talking about live attendance? Live attendance being down. Um, you know, a little bit earlier in the talk, she goes into this whole thing about how 40% of the, the people are now females. Uh, watching and then she's like 40 percent, and then you hear stephanie go almost 40 percent, and so you're just like she's like and and how do, and i understand you're responsible for for making them so much bigger and so that you know it's not the new narrative is that stephanie is responsible for the fact that the women watch wrestling well, uh, which was interesting to hear but um if, if you watch any any big historic announcement she's the one who always announces it so well it's funny they introduce her at the beginning of this talk they say quote she is a remarkable philanthropist, a former women's champion, as well as the current commissioner of Raw, one of the most influential executive in all of sports. Um, and so I was just like, what's strange about that is that's such a weird mix of like kayfabe history and current kayfabe to be like, yeah, she's the chief brand officer, but she's also <laughs> the commissioner of Raw because that's like being like, he's also the sheriff of, of uh, the the county of Twin Peaks be like, no, that that's an acting job. That's not a real job. You're not really that. He's an actor. And so it's strange to introduce her as a, a commissioner. The women's champion thing, at least I get, because then you can try to play the angle of she's been both a performer on in the in the ring and outside of the ring. Like you you can do that a little bit more by that. I can get why you're mentioning that she's a champion holder to just say, yeah, I know what it's like to take the bump. I get it. I know what these guys go through. I've been on the road and acted as a wrestler. Even though, again, it's kayfabe. It's it's strange to claim, but at least it gets her some credibility. But um, it is, uh, you know, somehow in there, you missed the part about her dad uh, owning the company, too. But that's neither here nor there. Yeah, I, I think mentioning that she's the commissioner of Raw is like, in wrestling, I, I always argue that wrestling is, is straddling in this weird place between being a live sport and being a scripted TV program. So it, it'd be like saying, you know, Chuck Norris is Walker, Texas Ranger. You, you don't say that. You wouldn't say that Stephanie is the star or like a co-star of, of WWE. That would sound even weirder. But to say that this is her – I mean they don't explain it that way obviously. But that is her role on the, the scripted TV show. And technically isn't Baron Corbin and uh, Kurt Angle the commissioners? I don't know. Who, who watches it? I don't know. <laughs> no, I know they're like the in charge. They're, they're playing the roles in the middle. Um, then she went into this weird tangent. Um where she she really wanted to play up the OTT service and how big it was in terms of how they're doing. But this tangent also went back into some of that revisionist history where if you, like me, have read the articles, followed the interviews, you remember how the WWE Network actually got launched. And the birthing process was not pleasant. Um, and they talk about that here. 
And it was kind of funny to have this brought up again because it's something that I think they kind of wanted people to forget about. And if someone else ever challenges me again and says, I don't really think, you know, the WWE Network was always the plan. What do you mean they didn't need to do this? Or just be like, well, listen to that interview that Stephanie McMahon gave in 2018 where she admitted it. And uh, what I'm talking about is about the 11 and a half minute mark. Live streaming OTT service uh, to launch. Wow. We were behind Netflix and Hulu, but the first live streaming. So it was um, a big calculated risk, which is another another key lesson. You know, you, we were actually pretty far down the pike with a linear model because our audience had demanded that they wanted their own WWE network. Um, but we had some pretty good offers, actually, and uh, they wanted to lock up our rights for 10 years. And we said, wait a minute, we're not going to do that. So we went back and did more research, and we found that our fans were five times more likely to watch online video content uh, than the American norm. And we realized we had a huge opportunity. So in eight months, we created the WW Network and launched just in time for WrestleMania. Wow. Okay, so what she's talking about there is about how the W Network, which is obviously a streaming service, was supposed to be a regular pay TV channel that would appear on your cable or satellite system, right? But it, it, in, in the course of that explanation, she, she mentions that they, whoever they are, wanted to lock up our rights for 10 years. What does that mean? I assume she was, they were looking at, you know, um, distribution agreements with the big um, MVPDs, mm-hmm. the, the multi-video um, yeah. providers, pay, basically, pay the content groups, yeah. you know, kind of the, this. imagine like the Comcasts or the Spectrums or the Time Warners of the world, the big systems that have to pay to decide what channels they're going to ca- cover and what they're going to pay, z- charge for that. And I'm guessing it was some sort of thing where they're basically saying either they wanted to, they wanted to offer deals. And, and Vince McMahon said this earlier, that he was given, a, a you know, so many cents per, per viewer type deal that was there and he ripped it up and and his people around him couldn't believe that he rejected the offer or it was somebody else who said i'll launch the channel on your behalf and we want 10 years of rights oh no is that what he did he literally ripped up a piece of paper it's it's in there in his 2013 2014 interviews yeah it's pretty funny because dave Meltzer, but the number he quotes is so ridiculously high that everyone's like yeah if you were actually offered that amount of money vince there's no way you would have ripped that up the number of cents per per uh, subscriber that it was going to be. But uh, let me see here. If I just do Indeed Wrestling, WWE, Vince McMahon claims ripped. Uh, I find historic wrestling moments. Vince McMahon admits wrestling is fake. Nope. That's not the one I'm looking for. Um, We're talking, are we talking like Raw Smackdown TV rights? Are we talking carriage fee rights? Carriage fees. Okay. Carriage fees, okay. exactly. And so... Uh, he was he, he made the claim, at least, that that there was a time when he basically ripped up a deal that was on the table there. Um, yeah. Vince claims he turned down the TV channels January 11th, 2014, hat tip to Paul O'Brien. While a more traditional channel can ensure a certain level of distribution, McMahon, chairman of the WWE, said in an interview that terms that the terms pay TV distributors wanted in order for carrying a WWE channel were too restrictive. McMahon said he had WWE deals ready to go with major distributors for a network that would have guaranteed fees of 20 cents per month per subscriber. I said, much of the chagrin of my staff, I'm not going to sign it. And like a month and a half later, they launched the network. Uh, Yeah, I mean, this was January 11th, 2014. So this is when they had uh, already announced that they were going to launch the network. Okay. Because they did it in January. 
but um, this is them. Yeah. And, and what I just kind of said at the time is that uh, WWE at the time was thinking about 40 million homes probably is what they were trying to get coverage for. Um, okay. Whether or not it was, you know, exactly a pay channel, it would be a pay channel the way ESPN is a pay channel is what they were debating. They were debating between it being like a, a HBO level channel or it being more like a G4 or a Spike TV or something where it's a channel that's part of the bundle that you get. Yeah. And that was closer to what they were kind of landing on, more like a 40 million. So you're talking about a, a channel that about half the cable subscribers in the country don't have access to compared to like a USA network that's in 90 million homes, 40 million homes would be about half of that. Yeah, like an access, yeah, you know, that sort of level. And if they were going to get, you know, 20 cents, that would be about a $8 million a month deal, maybe $96 million, um, which, you know, let's see here. So 90, So let's say it's $100 million. What are they making today on the WWE Network? Scrambling to open the trending schedules. We're talking yeah. reven revenue is the answer, right? We're talking revenue first. Yeah. So revenue of, let's say, $100 million. For a full year. Um, for a full year. And today, a full year of the network is about 175, 190, and this year it's going to be even more, maybe 200 this year, because yeah. um, they've, they've averaged about 50. So Vince uh, made the right call. Well, uh, let, so so again, let's go back to it and then say, okay, so it's a hundred million dollars, but is it going to include WrestleMania? And so, could you possibly have kept WrestleMania off that sort of a channel and then been able to then still done pay per view with WrestleMania? Probably. Would it have been more profitable than doing a whole OTT service yourself? Maybe. Um, because you would have also probably been able to get a lot of the cost pushed to the uh, uh, other side of the, the equation, possibly. Mm -hmm. um, you could maybe get it into a lot more than 40 million homes. You know, I think that was just where they were looking to launch at. That's not necessarily where they're looking to stay at. Uh, it, it, you know, the, the reality is, is it going to work out better for them in the long run? Probably. But where are they making their money today? Where do they make their money before? Still coming from TV deals. The digital OTT service is a very low profitability model, you know, maybe 25, 30% profitability and um, is, is slow growth. And the adoption has not been terrific uh, by the anywhere near the numbers that they thought they were actually going to get. They adjusted a Weebda on this stuff. Um, let's see here. Uh, operating income is sitting around 28% on the media segment. On, on we media. don't get operating income for just the network segment. But, no. you know, when I say we went from something that was maybe 50% margin to 25% margin, that's a big jump. We used to get operating income in and we've the numbers for the network, but they, they did away with that at, at the, the beginning of this year. You're right. So if we go to the older schedules, which we have on the, the Google Drive there, we could look it up and see what it was. And I'm I'm pretty darn sure, certain it's between 20 and 30 percent most quarters. Um, WrestleMania really messes with it. So you have to look you want to look at the one year number more than you want to look at the one quarter number. But um, just that idea uh, that, you know, it, it's a big difference in cost and structure and also what you would do with a network like that you're going to market it differently you're going to spend differently you're going to program it differently you know the linear stream has very little value to wwe these days compared to the way that a television stream would have to be programmed yeah but uh, i just thought it was really interesting the fact that she said 10 years i've never heard that number before uh you know you never know how much of this is hyperbole because it could always be one of these like it's a five-year deal with a possible five-year renewal the Rogers deal that they did sign for the WWE network for Canada was in fact a 10 year deal. 
So there is something else to be said about the fact that they did end up signing a 10-year deal for someone locking up their rights. And uh, I've said this for a while. In hindsight, Rogers is probably the genius on this one because they are not paying through the nose to get WWE programming right now the way almost everyone else is. Yeah, um, well, well, Canada, they're, they're talking about the U.S. C- carriers, right? And Canada is probably number four or five. In revenue driving, yeah. yeah. In homes, you're actually reaching. It might actually be pretty far up there when you think about it. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, so I just thought that was fascinating. That was That's why I said this is not a throwaway interview to me because she actually gave a piece of WWE history that I think most of us would have missed. But uh, uh, that was really interesting. And then speaking of 10 years... Uh, there's this whole section about the 10-year ambition for WWE, and this was the the line that kind of got the uh, article written about it in a CBR and other places, about the 18-minute mark. I'm just going to end on where do you see this brand f- 10 years from now, certainly different than 10 years ago. So what's your hope for what WWE is in 10 years? Uh, 10, 20, 30 years from now, there's no reason why we can't be as big or bigger than Disney. Now, that's because. a tall order, especially tall given order. recent transactions. However... There's no reason why we can't get there. You have to dream big, have big, bold goals, and go after them. Stephanie, thanks so much for, for joining me today. Big, bold goals. What does that sound like? Uh, I don't know. What do you mean? Sounds like a Vince thing, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Vince yeah. would say, this, this doesn't seem big enough for me. I want to see some big, bold goals on the, the plan this year, George. Well, that, that always seems to be the vibe I get from... Vince McMahon uh, and, and his company is that he wants to be more than just wrestling. He needs to be a, a expansive global entertainment uh, company. Market capital for Disney is one hundred and seventy five billion dollars. Market capital for WWE is like six billion, right? Yeah. So big difference there, but you know, give you an idea of of what they're saying is targeting their yeah. their competition, and and that's a question at one point is who is your competition? And Stephanie, do you know what her answer was? UFC. Ring of Honor, New Japan. Everyone. Everything's competition because you're fighting for the time. You're fighting everybody for, for, for a little bit of their attention. Um, but yeah, I, I don't blame, I, you know, it's easy to be critical of that line. I think, you know, if you are a marketing person, of course you want to say we're going to be as big as Disney. Um, I, do I think they have had all the infrastructure to do that? No, of course not. Disney exists on such a different level. And Disney's been brilliant about acquiring other brands. To but, kind of give so, themselves an evergreen glow. What is she even talking about then? Like, what what is that? What envision that? Like, in well, WB that's what like I was Disney. wondering. Does that mean you want to go and acquire brands? That's one way, right? So, say WWE bought some other, you know, not Marvel, obviously. <laughs> uh, you know, they brought some series of things, or they became a producer for a a Netflix or a Hulu or a Amazon in some way, or a Facebook partner. Um, producing what, but, like a reality show, a TV series? I don't know. Ms. And, and Mrs. And I think that's the challenge is it is really hard to envision it short of saying there's Disneyland's around the world and they want to set up performance centers around the world, but that's not a real clear analogous comparison. And a W theme park, there have been talks about maybe teaming up with universal studios or something for a W theme park someday or, and, or creating just a physical hall of fame. Much yeah. more like a you know like a rock and roll hall of fame sort of place, and I think Triple H just said like he, he wouldn't want it to be like a stationary, uh, you know, place in a, in a theme park, but he would want to like take it on the road or something. Well, I heard that Riyadh has put in a bid for a uh, a ten year uh, the uh, the 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 ring the ring in Riyadh 
the Davos in the desert and the ring in Riyadh. Really? No, I'm really. That I, I was in a car ride last night and someone approached me with the rumor of, hey, I, I heard that, uh, that, that the, 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 the president of Saudi Arabia offered, uh, WB like $10 billion to buy the company. Uh, you know, I, I'd heard a, it, that's not a hundred percent off. I, I think 7 that. billion was, was the number that was told to me by someone i mean this is just not i think i i told him for there's so many things wrong with that first of all there's no president of, of saudi arabia i don't think but and second of all <laughs> but well, I, i've not never not heard that yeah well i've heard that you know when you think about the fact that saudi arabia invested in um ufc in in endeavor and and abu dhabi invested in in ufc specifically and you've these governments have shown interest do i believe that one of them would say hey I'd like to own a quarter of WWE or I'd like to own half of it and we'll give you a billion dollars for that. Yeah. I don't think that that's out of the question that that could have happened. Mm -hmm. Now, do I think WWE would take a $10 billion offer? Okay. Now we're getting into numbers that would be big enough that WWE would care, but I don't think they would sell control of their company to a international government for a, a share that is significantly below, you know, five, $6 billion. I, I just don't think they would put the risk there. So I, I don't think that the Vision 2030 thing comes completely out of the blue with them not having some interest in owning some part of WWE with it, too. But I also don't think that WWE is is dumb enough to sell themselves that short, especially where they are in the cycle today. And I still believe I know others don't, but I, I still believe that Vince McMahon is not going to sell this company as long as he's alive. I think I am with you. I'm, I'm you know, you and I have talked to a lot of smart guys yeah. who will argue night and day that it's going to happen. And when I, the, all I know is I talked to somebody who used to work for Vince and his comment was Vince is going out of WWE in a box. He's not retiring. He's not leaving and he's not selling. What yeah. would he do with his money? He's got his money. He doesn't need the money to figure out what he wants to do next in life. The, the money are points on the scoreboard for him. I think, I think we can draw on the W hierarchy pyramid to, to like, explain this about why vince would never sell the company while he's alive did you print out the pyramid no oh okay i'm, I'm watching on the video feed and your eyes are looking above the computer i'm envisioning you it. actually printed out the pyramid i'm envisioning it i'm I, the, now you're giving me an idea now i'm going to go to go to to xerox or whatever fedex or something and i'm going to print out a big color print of it i'm going to frame it on my wall but maybe that should be our next uh 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 WrestleNomics Patreon uh, tier is that we should give just for Christmas this year. We should send everyone should. a copy of all the WrestleNomics graphics we've made, oh, including the pyramid. That'll be expensive. Uh, but yeah, I, I think the priorities for Vince McMahon are number one, his ego. Number two, his his company's economic interests. And it, it may be in his company's economic interest to sell the company or part of the company or controlling interest or whatever, but it's not in his ego's interest. I think he has like this vision of of WWE ending up, you know, he, he, I think he sees things as like this, this generational vision. There's this generational story going on that he has to complete the next chapter of. And the next chapter is for him to pass the company on to the next generation to give them full control of it after he dies. Just like, you know, just like Vince senior did for him. And just before that. Well, I think, I don't know if he wants to pass anything on. I think he wants somebody with him to grab the brass ring. Okay. And pro, cause, cause if you wanted to pass it on, Shane McMahon would not have left this company. Well, Stephanie's it, still there and, and, and Paul Levesque's there. Yeah. But my point being, I don't get the feeling like Vince is sentimental 
in the sense that he his family is the one that he wants to pass it on to. He wants to pass it on to the person he thinks is the most deadly ambitious about having it and that he can trust. And it, it is going to be Steph and Paul in that sense. But my point being that I don't think it said something where he just thinks, oh, well, they're my kid. They're the smartest. They're the best at what they're doing. I think he still holds them to a pretty high standard. The difference is I think he also gave them a lot more more ability to climb up the chain than anyone else would have gotten with that sort of um, pedigree. Yeah, no, I, Pun I, intended. Yeah, there you go. And I, I think I think Vince McMahon is somebody who really values generational, I don't know, values like you following in, in the footsteps of your parents. And I think that bleeds through into the decisions that he makes in creative. I think he doesn't trust people. And so the people that have been around him the longest are the easiest for him to trust in some ways because he doesn't have to learn new things about them. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, I mean, it segues perfect to my Linda McMahon story. Okay. You know, there was a story in Politico that Linda McMahon might be a, a candidate to replace Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross. Yes. And people were pretty shocked by this. And what I was trying to tell people is that she clicks a lot of boxes. Number one. She's known the Trumps for a very long time. Number two, she's a female cabinet member in Trump's uh, cabinet that does not have a lot of female trap cabinet members with people like Nikki Haley leaving. Number three, she's got a business background. Number four, she already is a billionaire. So it's a billionaire replacing another billionaire. Number five, she's avoided controversy during her time in the SBA. She has not gotten herself into trouble. When the OIG came out with recommendations on what the SBA should be doing better, she said, sure, let's do those things. She spends all her time on the road visiting SBA offices. And all things put said, for a very small office in the government, she's doing an okay job as far as anyone I know who's paid any attention can tell. She also has shielded herself from the criticism of, of the Trump administration by every time they ask her about things, she says, you know what? I've been traveling a lot. I, I don't, I'm not in this Washington day-to-day -day politics stuff. I'm out there fighting for the SBA, helping people, small business owners get things done. And, and the SBA um, is not like, it's not a very divisive position, right? You're not putting out social policies, on, uh, policies on social issues and whatnot. No, I mean, you could argue that who they decide to give loans to and the way that they, they administer those loans, the way that they want to give loans to people after natural disasters, yeah. things like that, that there's pol political ramifications of that, of whether or not you're basically trying to get lots of people through the door or very few people through the door, whether you're quick to approve applications, whether you're not. But all in all, she has been an advocate for, for basically this happening. It doesn't seem like she's gutting. Um, she doesn't seem like she's at odds with the career staffs of this. She was very quick to kind of insulate herself financially from accusations that she was going to, you know, profit off things. Um, you know, she was quick to be like, yeah, I'll put it in a trust. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll divest um, these things. Yeah, I'm not going to talk about WWE. Yeah, I'm not going to work on anything with this. So she was very quick to kind of bow out the way a lot of other people who have been criticized haven't. Um, and so she, she told all, TMZ that you're gonna have to ask Vince about Crown Jewel. Don't ask me. Yeah. And, and, you know, the same, and the, the next point is that, uh, with all that, the, the Senate confirms, uh, people like that. And the Senate is still Republican. She was bipartisanly basically confirmed in her current role. And as far as I can tell, honestly, compared to other alternatives, I think a lot of Democrats would rather someone like a Linda McMahon was in that office than the, the crazier side of people that they feel like Trump could be pulling out. 
um, and trying to push through. So will it happen? Maybe not. Um, is it shocking? I guess not to me. What was funny about it was I was talking to somebody who was asking me about this deal. Someone who only occasionally kind of zooms in on, on WWE stuff. They're more of a, a mainstream news type person. And uh, they're, they're just like, well, you know, maybe we can find some dirt on her. And I was like, well, there's not a lot of dirt that hasn't been uncovered. I was like, you know, she was like one of the biggest donors in 2016 to Trump's campaign. You know that she uh, uh, she and Vince are were the largest donors ever to Donald J. Trump's foundation, his charitable organization. Uh, you know that they go back decades with her. Uh, you know, she spent a ton of money and lose, lost all these races. And she was investigated quite a lot at that time. And so almost all the WWE dirt came out then. And so he's like, oh, okay, well, well, maybe this crown jewel thing, maybe, maybe there's a, a, a controversy there. I was like, yeah, but we, we've done a pretty good job of, of kind of uncovering what's happening there. He's like, well, well, maybe the State Department got involved and told them to do the show. I was like, well, you know, Bix actually had asked the State Department about that. And he's like, well, would, would anybody know anything about what happened to this deal? I was like, well, there was the right wing troll whose husband worked for WWE and was in charge of like global affairs and he got fired. And he's like, what are you talking about? I was like, oh, well, there was Sal Sineo or Sineo or whatever. Sino or something, yeah, yeah. He's actually popped up on some podcasts since then. So he's not completely really? like off the radar, like sports marketing podcasts, not okay. WWE stuff. But uh, he's not, uh, not anti-Semitic podcasts. <laughs> no, no, not those. But um, as far as I can tell. Uh, but uh, what I meant was like, I was like, well, maybe he would know something. But it was just so funny where like I so casually had to be like, yeah, there was that guy that like. Uh, BuzzFeed or political or whichever group it was, you know, discovered that his the the husband was in fact working for WWE and it got him fired. And I think, I think like, it was Huffington What are you Post, talking yeah. about? Yeah, and it was just funny because I was just like, yeah, that's how fast the news cycle is goes in in uh, the wrestling yeah. world where all this stuff has happened in six months. And, and just background, you're, you're referring to I think it's Amy Meckelberg, who's who's the wife yes. of Sal Sino, who had who had what you you remember the position he had probably executive vice president of something. He did deals with some Mid Middle Eastern TV partners, right? And she was on her Twitter account, she was making a you know posting a lot of like anti-Semitic memes and. Anti, I don't know if it was anti-Muslim, but I think it was. Yeah. No, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. An it was anti-Muslim. Excuse vice, me. Yeah. yeah. Go senior ahead. Senior Vice President, Global Content Distribution and Business Development. And uh, he took the job in February 2017. He lost the job in. Um, let's see here. When did this? Oh, when did the story break? Uh, I think the story broke in June, uh, June 4th. Or so. So June. So shortly in the middle there of when he probably would have been involved hypothetically with something like the Vision 2030 deal. Yeah. And she was do posting anti-Muslim stuff, not anti-Semitic stuff. Yes. That's yes. Meckelberg. Yeah. Okay. But and so it's just very, you know, one of just those very odd uh, uh, situations. But I was just like just talking about how I would be pretty shocked if a huge surprise Linda McMahon story broke because after all this time, most of it has come out. The only stuff that hasn't really come out so well is things like what was her role in the Tom Cole scandal in the 80s? And, you know, uh, what was her role around uh, the Zahorian uh, uh, trial? And, you know, trying to get make sure information kind of got pushed back and hidden and, and people didn't get caught. And, and there, there's a story there. But honestly, it's not there's not like in the last three years, I think she's been doing 50 things that we'd all be like, oh, my God, I had no idea Linda McMahon was doing that. Um, 
it's been investigated somewhat and she's basically living her dream life. This is where she wanted to go. This is what she wanted to do. Before this, she was working with um, Sacred Heart University in uh, Connecticut there. And they even had something called the Linda McMahon series, you know, wow, um, called Women Can Have It All. And, uh, you know, it's it's funny, some of the people that were in this because it was like, you know, Elaine Chow came and spoke and now she's like the transportation secretary and things like that. But um, uh, when when they went to the chairman of the marketing and sports management at, at Sacred Heart University, he said, WWE, I think they acted wisely in how they handled the event, Crown Jewel. They dialed down the promotion across all platforms for a while as the public cried out for them to outright cancel the event. You have to be sensitive to the potential impact that canceling a 10-year deal in year one may have had on the company. So I was just amused. It was a Stanford article uh, advocate article. And I just thought, wow, can you believe that the university that used to uh, have Linda McMahon as a major trustee would in fact defend Linda McMahon's co husband's company's decision? It, it lacked any sort of moral introspection about your, about the fact that they were doing a big business deal to do public relations for a government that is one of the worst human rights violators in the world. Yeah. Like, oh, if you're, no. if you're going to do that, I mean, it's, it's totally amoral. Go ahead and do it. But if you're going to do it, this yeah. is what you got to do. Yeah, there's certainly a lack of navel gazing uh, when you're just saying, well, this would have hurt them financially. Yeah. Well, no crap, but was it the right thing to do in the first place? Yeah. We're going to flip gears. We're going to switch. Uh, we're going to do another interview with a major wrestling personality. We have on the line, Micro Man. No. Uh okay, and now we're going to talk about our main man, the main man in New Japan, our friend and yours. Uh, born on December 4th, 1963, the president and CEO of New Japan Pro Wrestling, Harold May, who did an interview, as you mentioned earlier, with Uprocks, an interview with Emily Pratt. And this is the uh, a long interview in English, originally in English. And uh, I think as, as Chris Charlton mentioned on Twitter, this is, this is how I became aware of it. Um, it's really, you know, I, I know Harold May obviously has his column where he writes stuff. It's kind of a blog that he writes in, in Japanese. He's done a lot of Japanese media. He's, he comes out on New Japan shows and he addresses the crowd in Japanese. But this is the first time we've really got something that's in English addressed to the Western audience. And at the bottom of our doc, I even put some uh, uh, Harold pictures in, you know. Yes. Because uh, I was enjoy. all excited about the, the concept of uh, Harold for Halloween. And so there's there's uh, Harold Halloween. wearing the same outfit we saw him in another time uh, where he's kind of a headless man holding his own head um, with him in Liger. There's one of him posing with somebody else and they both have have like IWGP belts on and uh, I've been looking through his blog and translating stuff and, and looking at it but this is great to have like a long English interview um, I'm wondering if this interview was done uh, when wasn't wasn't New Japan going to be in like California for like one of those anime expos I don't know I I had, I had tweeted out about this that like New Japan was supposed news. to be at this like expo I'm seeing if it's mentioned here whether this was done at the LA Dojo or something like that. I don't yeah, know. they were going to be at this Chara Chara Expo USA, and uh, let's just see when when was Chara Expo USA? Uh, I, I, let's see what what are the dates? November 10th and 11th. I I'm betting you anything. It has to do with the fact that Chara Expo USA was November 10th and 11th. And it's um, sponsored by Bushi Road, mm -hmm. and I, I gotta believe that that somehow this is kind of in conjunction with that. Mm 
So in the interview uh, with Emily Pratt, uh, Harold May, who's been the New Japan main man since May of 2018, he, there's a, a number of like interesting points, and uh, I've got some big quotes here. Just some of them we'll go over. But uh, the the first question that he's asked, he, he's asked about you know how he got into wrestling and. Uh, I thought it was very similar to stories that we've heard, you know, pitches that we've heard from George Berrios about the hero's journey, where, where Harold May, uh, re, you know, talks about pro wrestling, and he says, and and so the only TV when he was in Japan, so his father uh, moved moved him to, to you know the family to Japan to work there, and uh, on on TV there wasn't a lot that they could watch and understand, but pro wrestling they could understand. When you see a ring, you know what's going to happen, as, as George Berrios says. Um, so what he would, and it's funny because because they ask him about like what wrestlers he remembers from that era, and he's like, uh, I remember like uh, Abdullah the Butcher and the Destroyer. I, I don't know who they worked for. <laughs> yeah, and and I, I think Emily Pratt asks him, so you were watching All Japan, and he's not really sure. Um, he, he says he got into New Japan again about ten years ago, which would place it at about two thousand eight. Um, I'm still not really clear on how much of a fan he really was of new japan before he was hired especially based on like the match that he basically says is his favorite match which just happened to have happened like seven days ago but uh but yeah to to be fair though if i was a george barrios or someone it would be tough to necessarily be a big wrestling fan and have your own career and do other things and when you finally get put in the place where this is your day in day out life you immerse yourself in what is happening right now and so most likely you're going to care most about what's happening right now. And yeah, I don't expect a lot of these executives are the types that are saying, hey, let me go back and watch the old back catalog and learn more about wrestling. But Harold you know, May is these... saying that he got into New Japan about 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, when you ask about like his favorite match, of course, it's something recent. Because same way, if you ask, you know, George Berrios about his favorite match, I'm sure it was something that that, you know, Seth Rollins did in the last year. Or he'd probably say it was Triple H coming back. That, that that tag match at Crown Jewel is probably his favorite. Yeah. Um. Um. But what do you mean by his wrestling philosophy? What do, what do, what do, what is it that we learned about Harold's wrestling philosophy? So there's this big thing in 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 the interview. And I think I'm going to read this whole thing verbatim. You stop me and and uh, interrupt me with some comments. But he explains and, and about. I'm 99% sure this happened at Charo Expo because yeah. on the page for Charo Expo it mentioned special guests, Takeshi Kiandi. Uh, Kadani? The uh, CEO, of, yeah, Kadani. CEO of Bushy Roads, yeah. and Harold George Mage. So they're listed as guests at this event. So I have to believe it's related to that, along with Liger, Taguchi, Omega, Romero, Cobb, ACH, Goto, and David Finley. Yeah, and by the way, we just have text of this. Otherwise, we would be playing you audio clips. But uh, he's asked what his favorite New Japan match was, and he says before he answers that question, he wants to give you his wrestling philosophy. And he says, so before we go into what my favorite match is, I do want to mention this, why people like wrestling matches to begin with. And then we can talk about the favorite one. And in my case, I think this has to do, this is a little bit philosophical, but I get it from a lot of people, a lot of fans in Japan who basically say the same thing. And that is, as an individual, there are times in your life when you have to fight. I don't mean literally fight, but you know, you have to fight for a cause or, or fight to protect your family or yourself or your opinions or for your job or your work or whatever you're doing, but you have to fight. That's not physical, but more mental. But when you really come to it, you often don't have the courage or the guts to actually go through with it. 
But when I see people physically fighting and overcoming struggles like a lot of the wrestlers have, they put a lot of time in. They overcome a lot of injuries or personal sacrifices or struggles within the wrestling world. When you see them give it everything in their match, it actually gives you as a spectator strength and courage to do more than you might uh, than you might not have done in the past. And I get that from a lot of fans. Uh, he's, you know, he's saying a lot of fans say that to him as well, that they say the same thing. They say that's one of the reasons why wrestling is so attractive to them, which I thought was interesting. Like, and he, he goes on later in this interview to talk about how wrestling is, uh, you know, it's based on emotion and it's important, uh, as an emotional thing. And I think that's a, that's a good explanation of how wrestling deeply connects with people. And I think I've never heard anything along these lines from, from a WWE executive, uh, talking about why wrestling is important, why wrestling connects with people. I, I guess, like, I don't know. I think he's taking, I, and I, I don't, I know I'm, I'm sort of mocking the, the, the hero's journey. We kind of mock it sometimes, but like, I think that's a fine way to explain why wrestling does connect with people on a global level. But I think his explanation here takes it to another level where, as we all, you know, I often criticize like, yeah, they, they want to put smiles on people's faces. They use that line all the time. And I think they, they're content to put smiles on people's faces rather than to make deep emotional connections. And I think that's, this is, you know, a great example of, of what I'm, I'm thinking of there. I will never say that Harold does not understand Japanese culture and does not understand uh, Japanese business. Cause I think he, he does get that very much and that's been his success. And I think what he's saying here is very interesting cause it's very Japanese where it talks about the idea that like you, you're, you're forced to fight for something in your life. And then a lot of times you don't have the courage or the guts to do it yourself. And it's kind of that whole, like, you know, the, 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 the proverb that's like, if a nail sticks up, knock it down. Is that especially or, Japanese or is this just human? I think it's especially Japanese. Cause the idea is that like, you don't, you don't want to go against the current. It's, it's a, it's, it's a world that is very much hierarchical. Mm-hmm. It's a world where it's about the, the normalcy. And so wrestling oftentimes stands out because it's like, oh my God, who has the guts to have a mohawk like that? Who has the guts to be so different and so disrespectful? And so, you know, over the top and like, that's really, and so I think that's a very Japanese answer. Cause I'd say in other places, if you ask the Americans about that, this is not the way they'd answer. This reminds me of when like Lex Luger comes to town and the backstage interviewer says, Lex, what do you think about all the great talents you've been seeing here at AWF all night? And Lex has to give an interview where he doesn't in any way actually bury what is going on around him, but in no way is he have to be remarkable about what is actually happening. And so it's just him kind of being like, instead of getting into who my favorite wrestling match is and revealing that I kind of am just a guy brought into this business, I'm instead going to talk philosophy with you and then just kind of see if I can push aside that question so that the answer doesn't really matter. I can make it bigger about this is the bigger idea that I'm selling. And I'm with you when I say, I think this is a better thing to sell, which is I'm in the business of selling heroes. And these heroes are are dynamic examples of the struggles of life. And they connect to people on a fundamental level rather than saying, I'm in the business of entertainment and smiles and nothing matters. And this is a fake world because it's, it's as if you go to watch the Marvel movie and it starts off with all the actors being like, hey, want everyone to know that we're really friends. This doesn't matter. This isn't real life. And you shouldn't be emotionally invested in what's happening. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. That was really interesting. Um, and you know, it's a good philosophy. I think, I think it's one way to go. 
Uh, I do feel like it is a little bit of a Japanese philosophy, though, to say kind of like this, that what you're getting here is not about literally fighting, because I think most of the time we're watching this and we're thinking, no, these guys are literally fighting. They're, they're literally, well, they're they're having a worked fight. Um, yeah, they're having a worked fight, yes. Um, uh, let's go to the next point here. Westernization of New Japan wrestling. So, so he's asked about whether... Uh, is he westernizing New Japan? And he kind of gets into semantics about what that really means. But he says that uh, in, in the way that I, th- I think you mean it, no, we're not trying to westernize New Japan. He thinks that one of the important selling points of New Japan is its Japanese-ness, whatever that means. But but yes, he says, if you're saying, oh, you're trying to westernize it by bringing more English content, then yes, we are. And you know what podcast is pretty much almost run its entire course that, that uh, I, I have to bring up at this point? Russellnomics? FMW. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> FMW, um, which the history of FMW podcasts are just about to get to the very final year. Oh. And uh, what, what's fascinating about it is they really talk about FMW ran into this whole conundrum where they went from the the uh, Anita version of FMW to being the entertainment version when they got this, uh, basically this money from DirecTV Japan to go be this Americanized Japanese wrestling fed with these crazy entertainment storylines, you know, so-and-so is a ghost and if he has this belt, it's killing him and so-and-so has kidnapped this guy's daughter and, and just these crazy over-the-top things. And they just keep making the point that one of the challenges FMW had is that when they started to fail and especially when Hayabusa got like, you know, literally paralyzed. Yeah. They were in this this conundrum because they're like, we can't go back to blood and guts because we ran off those fans. What they want now, the fans that are left, they kind of want these cheesy entertainment storylines because that's what we are now. But they kind of go through the whole point about like FMW as it went era to era to era, it would run off one group of fans and bring in a different group of fans. And the problem is... At a certain point, if you keep changing what your identity is, you don't have an identity anymore. And even if that identity isn't working for you, sometimes that's better than having no identity at all. And it, it reminds me a little bit of New Japan, which is to say you westernizing New Japan might be a death blow to them because you do want to be uniquely Japanese. But I would still argue there's 50 different ways to be uniquely Japanese. DDT is still uniquely Japanese. Big Japan is uniquely Japanese. Um, New Japan is uniquely Japanese. Dragon Gate is uniquely dra- Japanese. I think all of those promotions that you just mentioned have their own different, maybe even wrestling styles and their own special quirks. Um, can we try to unpack what he, what he means by the Japanese-ness, which he, 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 you know, he's pointing out in this interview that, well, what is that, what does that I, really I, mean? I, I, I think I, that I might think... be a trigger word for him because I imagine as a guy who's not Japanese born, he spent his entire life being accused of being inauthentically Japanese. But he's talking about, he's talking about that in the context of pro wrestling. And I, I, I know what you're saying about, you know, in the larger picture, but in the context of pro wrestling, like what makes, besides geography, what makes Japanese wrestling Japanese wrestling, what makes Western or American wrestling Western American wrestling, I think it has a lot to do, and he kind of gets into it in some of this detail in the interview, like I think it has a lot to do with how finishes are booked, what finishes mean, and yeah, so how much mic work part, there is. Says, what makes de- what makes New Japan unique? What does he say? Uh, he says, well, first of all, we see it as a sport. The wins and losses matter. It matters very much to the wrestlers. It matters very much to the fans. So it is a serious sport. He knew I was going to read this interview. I know it. That's fine. No, th- these, are, these are good bullet points. I like this part. 
uh, he, he makes another point about how wrestlers reinvent themselves. There's new moves. Uh, they train their young lions. It takes years for them to train at the dojo before they make their debuts. And we don't rely a lot on mic performance. Yeah, we do it, but there isn't a lot of it like you see elsewhere. And our, our wrestlers' personas are not artificially created. And, and you could make the point that, yeah, promo work is not done the same way. The, the emphasis on promo work in American wrestling historically was enormous. There aren't – so, like, in American wrestling, there are segments, you know, like the, a, a card or a show is kind of constructed in segments. And some of those segments may be filled with matches. Some of those segments may be filled with promos, especially in WWE, even on – I mean, like, throughout Western wrestling, I think that's pretty common. And But in Japanese wrestling, now, there's, of course, there's I'm sure there's exceptions like Dragon Gate and DDT, especially. They're on a, a, another end of the spectrum. But in more traditional Japanese wrestling that I think is a category that, let's say, New Japan still falls into, they're – there really aren't segments that are that start out with like here here comes so and so with the mic to make a challenge on somebody. If they do angles that involve the mic, it's usually after a match. They have a couple other things. They have press conferences though, yes. which yeah, WWE sure. and and rest, Western wrestling almost doesn't have at all. Where they literally go on the interview people and they are kind of expected to kind of do work shoot interviews where yeah. they talk about what they like and don't yeah, like. That's a good point. And that's what makes news for us because we'll be like, hey. Isn't it interesting that uh, Tanahashi says he doesn't really care for, for Kenny Omega's style? Yeah. Um, and, and what does that mean? And, and that's kind of intriguing. And they're and then quoted they also in media, have, too. They, they're, say again? And, and they're, they're quoted in media, too. I mean, it's sort of still today because there are the sports websites. I don't know what the hard copy uh, periodicals are like in Japan anymore. But certainly in previous decades, that was a big deal. Uh, there were wrestling magazines that we would be put out uh, regularly and... I remember when I was covering Japanese wrestling, like in the early 2000s, like there would be angles shot through the media and there would be quotes from wrestlers. And, and there is people that have been known to give the like heartfelt performances. Onita is absolutely famous for Onita Theater. And Onita Theater is after his match, oh, yeah. he goes out, he smokes the cigarette, he sits on the chair and he gives the lecture to his people. And he, he does that over and over and over yeah. again. That's amazing. And makes that his thing. And, yeah. and to a degree, Anoki had a, a similar thing that he would sometimes do. This is true, yeah. Like on, on like every New Japan Tokyo Dome show, uh, before Anoki left New Japan, there's always a time where Anoki comes out and does Genki's... You know, what does he say? How are you doing? Genki's ka? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Ichini Sanda. So, but I, I, I agree completely that what makes New Japan completely different... If I was Access and I said, hey, should I buy... TNA, should I buy MLW, should I buy Ring of Honor content, or should I buy this New Japan content? What makes you guys different? This would would be a great way of selling it. We're, we're a sport. Wins and losses matter. They matter to the wrestlers, and they matter to the fans. We reinvent the new moves. They're coming from Japan. And you know what? We have a system. You become, you move up the chain, and people respect you because they see you start off as a nobody, and they see you move up the chain, and it proves that you're physically tough, you're mentally tough, and we don't hand it to anybody. And yeah, promos are not our biggest things because what happens in the ring is what matters and it's authentic. It's not artificial. You know, it's buzz, but it's a way of saying that. Yeah, there's, with some exceptions, there's not like a line that is crossed where you feel like your intelligence is being insulted, I think, with traditional Japanese wrestling. Um, Up until the point we got into the work shoot era. What do Things you mean? got pretty ugly there. Things got bad, but what, what, do you, what do you mean? 
just with when bringing in all the MMA guys to crush all the wrestler guys and just kind of the mentality behind all of that. I think it was kind of made everyone unhappy in the end. It, it made pro wrestling look bad because it brought in all these MMA guys and it basically it buried pro wrestling because it made it look like here's the top of wrestlers and let's this is like Inoki's vision take the top of wrestlers put them against the top you know athletes of other martial arts and see what happens and what happened was in shoots the pro wrestlers lost embarrassingly yeah and and sometimes in the works the MMA people were so bad that they were embarrassing kind of being in the ring and and being part of this all. Well, and Noe Ogawa became a huge star. I mean, there's exceptions. Oh, but. I mean, there was big stars. I just mean, there was also some really bad putting people in the ring who clearly didn't know how to work a match. Uh, next couple questions were basically asking him things like, why did you come to the pro wrestling industry? And you have a background, and people don't know, he has a background in both a toy company, in beverages, in branding, things like that. And so they, they're asking him about that. Why did you go to wrestling? And what can you tell me about branding? And he thinks that uh, branding is very different in Japan. Uh, the, the laws are different. And you need kinds of people like him who have experience in marketing brands uh, throughout the world, not just within Japan. And there's something to be said for that, which is it is very tough to export your brand to another country and then know exactly how it's perceived and what are the sort of things that are expected. I mean, we even see that with the way that sponsorships work in different countries. You've, where where the sponsors go, what are the sponsors' relationships with, with the brands that they want to do? And then how do you sell something? Is it, you know, you think about the funny thing when whenever we get like footage of American stars on Japanese television, you know, pushing coffee or cigarettes or whiskey or whatever. And it seems so strange, but you realize, oh, that's such a big deal there that you need to have a celebrity endorser to push your brand. And that's part of how you can sell some of these ideas. Um, so I think that's part of it. But what I thought was interesting is didn't he have a section in here where he just talks about, I can change the design of a bottle of water. I can make it any color, but I can't do that to a wrestler. I cannot say from now on, you will do this. You will be this other thing. I'm talking to a human being here, a creative human who wants to express himself in the ring. So it doesn't work like a product. I think that's the one thing special. And that's very true. That's a huge challenge is that when you're, when you're selling the concept of the performers, the talent, that's so different than selling a product you can manufacture. And I've gone through this with my improv company because uh, theater is very much this, where it's intangible. You can't bottle it up. And so what you're doing is you're selling an experience and that experience is driven by people and those people have to be there live to enter be entertained or not be entertained. And you can't promise it's always going to be good. You can't say, hey, this candy bar is going to have this many grams of protein. It's going to taste taste like sidewalk chalk. And uh, you're going to call it uh, the the no cow sadness bar. <laughs> uh, but, you know, for, for an, an improv show or a theater performance or whatever, you'd never know exactly what you're, you're delivering. And that's much harder to then change it on the fly because you got to retrain people. You got to you got to kind of get people to bend to your will. It's very difficult to kind of resculpt that. And so I can hear that if you come from a, a CPG consumer packaged goods type background, it's very tough to kind of transition to a talent management background where you have people's whims, worries and uh, whimsical nature to deal with. Yeah. And I, th I think that's how pro wrestling stars or people that you want to turn into pro wrestling stars should be thought of. Um, they're not just interchangeable brands that can, you know, you can, you can always create a new one. I don't know. They're, they're people and, and, and brands and personalities that you want people to connect with over time and who have to in themselves be creative in what they do. And then he even mentions here, this other one, the no gate, the negotiation, negotiation, 
process is totally different between how Japanese companies negotiate together than is it than it is with a Western company. The rules are different, the skills are different, which speaks to that uh the sentence I had earlier about Japanese law versus American law. Yeah. Yeah. Um what about the rumors that Harold May has ruined New Japan and made everyone sad and angry? This is all a long subtweet on Dave Meltzer, isn't it? Um, he, he brings up that he, you know, they, they have banned, it's his decision, they've banned the F word, the middle finger, shooting the water out of, out of the mouth. He's referring to Lance Hoyt. Um, and those, was he those, spitting on fans or was he just doing like a Triple H entrance? Well, I, I think the deal is he comes out with, with the water bottle and then like he, he spit sprays it like into the first several rows. And uh, so he's, he's, yeah, pe people don't like that because it's a changed. And I think that's why you get rumors starting. Um, and he just goes right into, but as far as morale is concerned, I mean, last year we generated our highest sales ever in the 46 year history of the company. We're attracting a lot of global talent to our ring and to our promotion. And I think you, having talked to our wrestlers, the morale is actually extremely high. So that's how he explains so, that away. This is number one. Is there any way we can prove it's the highest re sales ever in 46 years? We have the revenue number. Yeah. We the, do have the revenue number. We have the balance sheet. We have the we 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 have the balance. The sheet. balance sheet doesn't have revenue. revenue we have the net income number. The balance sheet doesn't have revenue, but but they have separately reported revenue every year, at least. Yeah. In the Bushi Road era, and b before that too, I think we have yeah. those numbers. And I think it was one of our premium shows, either one week ago or two weeks ago, where um, I went through and I translated the 2018 balance sheet and we popped it in there and put a link to all the subscribers. So WrestleMomics.com, $5 a month. You can even read that thing. The other half is I'm the boss of the company and I go around, I ask people, are you happy? Do you want to work here? And do, would you believe it that up until the day I was fired, everybody told me they were happy and they wanted to work here? Yeah. Can you believe that? Yeah. And then so I had these, I had these employees quit and it had nothing to do with me, but they quit, uh, for completely unrelated reasons. Well, it's just All because he made these rules and, he, and then that upset some people. <laughs> no, I mean, I just say and that's why they're it, talking to Dave. It's not an unbiased, uh, 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 observer here. And I do think that it's probably a mix of, of two things. Of course, some people in the company, specifically if you're getting a push and in the past, you didn't think you ever were going to get a push. There's a pretty good shot that you are the sort of person who's going to do well in this. Conversely, um, there are some people who maybe were, were in a great position previously, was able to put the company over a barrel a few times, maybe even. And now maybe the company isn't necessarily bending to your whims nearly as much and that you might not be in nearly the power that you used to have. And yes, it could be things like you're getting rid of wrestling executives and replacing them with marketing executives. And that is always going to be controversial. I'm sure WWE went through this transformation where suddenly you had people with business backgrounds coming in and taking roles that historically had gone to former wrestlers or buddies of wrestlers or just people who had been around the business forever. And it's that argument about, you know, who does business best, the people that know the most about the business or the people who know the most about the concept of business. And the answer is you need a good mix. So why does w, why does New Japan have so many female fans? According to Harold May, normally they have forty to fifty percent of their audience. I think he's referring to live audience are women. Um, so almost half, he says, which is incredible indeed. Ten percent are kids under twelve, and then you know the the rest forty fifty percent are men. Okay, do you believe that? Uh, that I think it's higher than 
than the average WWE crowd. Um, no, 50% is definitely too high. I was going to say, if WWE themselves is barely claiming 40, I... I think that think refers that, to a TV audience. But. I think New Japan... And, and you know, when you go to a live event, you're going to have a lot more than 10% of kids. That's for sure. Um, but the question about will getting to a third... I just don't know if I, I necessarily see New Japan as a group that is is has that high percentage of female fans, especially without any, without a, a women's wrestling division. Um, that also, you, I think, in the past has been a factor in some companies having a large female viewership. You know, especially when you go back to the days of all Japan women. Um, but you know, we have seen people like Dragon Gate, which has also drawn a very large female audience. So it's not to be said that it's impossible by having a, ma a male group. And then he starts talking about the wrestlers, I think, right now. I don't think he's talking about the fa female fans, right? No, he's talking about the wrestlers. <laughs> he says, we have good-looking good ones. ones. I think he means wrestlers. Right? Yes, we have good-looking ones. We have funny ones. We have young lions. We have strong. We have power ones. We have hero types. So there's different wrestlers that you can fall in love with. That, I think, is one key. And um, doesn't he talk about I, – I, I don't see you actually pulled this out of the interview. Doesn't he talk about giving a business card to people who come and meet him where he's like, thank you for meeting with me and talking with me, Harold May? Well, I, I think he – yeah, I think he takes pictures with people. There's a point where he explains how – it makes him sound like he's very accessible and um, – Oh, there's the story he tells about how, and maybe somebody knows the specific event that this happened on, but there was a, a brawl outside and, you know, something happened, you know, maybe near the guardrail and, and a woman's knee was hit and, uh, he went personally and checked on her to make sure she was okay. Well, I remember when one of their announcers and like broke their ribs on the show, Jim Harold Ross. was down there making him feel better, right? I don't, I don't think so. I think, oh, okay. I think, I think the response so that, to that, that didn't happen. Well, Josh Barnett ran in the ring. That's what happened yeah. in that situation. Josh, in the form of Harold May, uh, came in the ring. But his, his, his point here is that, like, he's saying that women feel comfortable in our venues because we we're very uh, careful about things like that. And and he makes the argument that um, in in Japan there there isn't a, a lot of like, oh, you don't know anything about wrestling. You know, well, what are you doing here? You know, he says that fans in Je in Japan. And in New Japan fans are very much the opposite, and that if you don't know something about it, they'll they, they're eager to explain it to each other. So it's a, a really fascinating interview Emily Pratt uh, did. She's on Twitter at I think it's uh, let's see here. She just followed me, and I just followed her. It's uh, Emily of Pratt, freelance writer, sometimes performer. I write about wrestling at with spandex, mostly New Japan wrestling, and uh, works on something called the Hive Mind Product. She lives in L.A. I have to believe um, that she did this interview as part of that that um, expo event that's happening in uh, uh, California right now. And hey, that's great. I think that's wonderful that that's exactly the sort of thing that a New Japan should be doing. I'm so happy to hear, you know, people kind of being able to get these kind of interviews. I I reached out to Harold once. He uh, he I think he sent me back a note that said something along the lines of "Thank you for supporting New Japan." You know, uh, he didn't send me the business card or the sticker, so oh. maybe I'll have to hit him up for that next time. You need to request but, uh, an eight by ten. Yeah, but next time I'm in uh, uh, Tokyo, I will definitely uh, ask for an interview with him and a uh, meeting with him, and and perhaps maybe he'll write an article about me. Who knows? Yeah. No, th there's some questionable things in here about, especially about the, the morale, and uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, I I was at an arena football game once, and 
what happened? I don't know. We got like something, there's some problem with our seats. I went with my dad many years ago and like, there's some problem with our seats and like, uh, you know, my dad went to customer service, something like that. And then like the owner of the team, like 20 minutes later came down and talked to us. I, I, I imagine that's like a thing that's done in sports of like, you know, Oh wow. The, 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 the president of the company came in and made sure that that situation was okay. Look how, look how, you know, serious they are about customer service. Well, I'll go on my long unrelated story here. Um, Planet Money just did a whole thing about the Falcons. And why did the Falcons drop their food prices? Why do you think this was? Fan morale. Kind of. They called it fan engagement scores. And so the problem was this. Uh, you know how concessions actually work in an arena? Uh, it's basic economics. Well, it's 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 basic contract economics. Mm. So the way it works is that the, a different company runs the concession stand. And they said, we built a new stadium and we had people come in and they say, we will give you a $20 million signing bonus. Plus, we will give you 60% of the gross revenue if you give us control of the concessions. That's the kind of contracts they put out there. Hmm. And when you think about a deal like that, what that basically does is it means that for a while, the company that's running that deal is going to lose money. That's a loss leader to start with. And it's going to take a while to kind of get that money back. So when you think about it, what can they do to make their money, uh, make more profit? Number one, you can raise food prices a lot, right? You can start charging as much as you can for a captive audience the way you would for an airport. Number two, you can spend as little as you can on basically uh, high quality ingredients. Get the cheapest food out there. And number three, you can spend the least you can spend on contracting employment. And so that's why there's such long lines and it's so slow sometimes is partially is because it's in their most interest to basically figure out where they can cut the cost the most and they can keep the revenue as high as they want. And they are indifferent to the fact that the beer is warm or they run out of this food or they don't, you don't like the selection. And so they basically said, we were stuck because we didn't know how to improve our fan engagement stores because the fans don't care that the co the concession company owns it. The fans only care that they went to my stadium and they had a bad experience. So we went to the team owner and we said, we would like to propose a completely different model for how we're going to do our concessions. And you're going to have to subsidize a bunch of losses because we think we're going to sell maybe 25% more food if we drop the prices, but you're still going to lose millions of dollars a year. And we want you to see that as an investment in fan experience. And in the end, they said they had no problem at all, basically getting the, 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 not the GM, but the owner of the team signing off on that. And in the end, they didn't lose nearly as much money because, uh, t they didn't sell 25% more. They sold 51% more food. Um, they started, they became basically all the other teams started to say, Hey, this is what we want to do. We want to get an experienced fan reaction like this. And at the same time, the Falcons recognized that they couldn't fix other problems. They couldn't fix parking. They couldn't fix some of the other things that they knew were going to be problems with them being able to improve the fan experience. So they chose to concentrate on this. And so I do think that a lot of sports teams are kind of faced with that same conundrum of how do you improve the experience? And WWE even said, in its latest conference call that they think that they need to improve, or as Vince said, reimagine the live event experience. And I do think that there is a little bit of an understanding right now that there, there's a, a, a growing disconnect. And the problem is you can't do a meet and greet with 4,500 people. You can do that for ring of honor with 500 people, but you can't do it with nine times that amount of people and have anyone actually get more than a half a sentence out to every wrestler before it's all over, or before it's just Ty Dillinger is the only guy who's able to show up and talk to everybody. 
So it's a challenge to think of what that reinvention means. But I think WWE needs to recognize that they need to move there. And that just like you say, it is important to a lot of these sports owners that they actually have fans that have good experiences. And that does matter to them. So, so maybe when a WWE pay-per-view goes off air and all the fans boo because of the finish or whatever the main event was, maybe they can console them by having Vince McMahon come out and give a Q&A on why he made the decisions that he made to enhance the fan experience. I think it will pretty much just be that uh, uh, Ron Killings takes a chair shot and uh, go home happy. No, but, but, but seriously, I think but besides those – besides uh, – I think he's. I think he's got a very biased view on the morale. Um, I think this was a pretty impressive explanation of what Japanese wrestling was, or uh, what pro rest, what his pro wrestling product was compared to other people who have been put in prominent positions in, in big pro wrestling companies who came from outside the pro wrestling industry, who had l- very little pro wrestling knowledge coming in. I don't think your your Jim Herds of the world would come in and have such a good description of what their pro wrestling product is and, and why people connect with it. I'm with you, but I think the strength of leadership comes in adversity more than it comes in success. Mm-hmm. So he's, it, he's in a very nice place right now where the company is growing a lot. The company is getting success. The company is expanding. What is going to be fascinating is how does he deal with losing key talent? How does he deal with deciding where, what his actual U S strategy is going to be? When it comes to running shows, now that they've kind of leveled off as being the hot new thing and going to the same arenas all the time, are they going to actually expand more? Are they actually going to change the way they present? Are they going to find a different network besides Access? Are they going to find a different set of announcers to work instead of Jim Ross and Josh Barnett? And Lanny Poffo. It sounds like those are off. And and bringing in the Lanny Poffos of the world. Um, are they going to you know play nice with TNA? Are they going to play nice with CMLL? Are they going to take WWE on directly or indirectly? Are they going to make a play for Shinsuke Nakamura or are they going to try to find more homegrown talent? Are they going to make Kenny Omega the face of the company? I'm fascinated to see where this goes. And that's why I say it's it's adversity and the way that you deal with a challenge like that, that's really going to make or break you. The same thing with the Jim Hurts. On a flip side, you could say he was dealt a pretty lousy hand that he was inheriting at the same time and that he wasn't dealing with well. And, you know, that he didn't really come into necessarily the most stable organization at times. And so that you can also say that it's tough to compare people of different calibers. I think this sounds like someone who gets a great elevator pitch of what New Japan is, why it matters and why it's excited. And I think he's legitimately excited about it, much in the same way that if you hired me to go work in a cricket organization or rugby organization, I would probably not show the passion immediately about knowing the sport and the history but I would be passionate about my job and I'd be passionate about learning and trying to communicate that to everyone. And that's what I see new see Harold as is a guy like me coming into another thing where I'd say, I like this, but I don't know much a lot about it. So to all those cricket team owners out there, if you need a great GM for your team, Mookie's ready. He will become passionate about cricket. I think more like a, uh, an analytics guy or maybe, maybe put me in charge of concessions. Okay. Start me off small. Okay. You've been listening to WrestleNomics Radio. We produce two shows a week. This is only show number one. On show number two, we're going to do our premium stuff. We're going to do some other cool conversational stuff. And uh, you know what? The people on show number two, they actually subsidized show number one. That's why show number one was any good today. Uh, We're going to talk about Ring of Honor, MLW, Naito, Overruns, Network, 
Wall Street Journal, stock, jobs, legals, you name it, we're there. Um, and uh, we can always be found on Twitter. I'm at Mookie Ghana. Show's at WrestleNomics. Brandon's at Brandon Thurston. You can also go to at Brandon Howard Thurston, but I don't think anyone's going to be there. No, that's too long of a... That, you can't go to that. You, you, can, you can go to that, but you'll get like a Twitter error message. Oh, I'm checking that out right now. It's right. just too easy. No, that's over, the, that's over the, the handle limit, I'm sure. Sorry, that page doesn't exist. Yeah, it sure doesn't. But uh, that's where we are. That's what we do. And uh, if you go to it, though... <laughs> <laughs> Manny's mom, October 14th, said, Great article about WWE and Royal Rumble at hashtag Daily Beast, hashtag Brandon Howard Thurston. What? Oh, someone's complimenting yes. my article? Yeah. And But it says, in WWE's defense, no mention that WWE signed the first Arab female wrestler, Shadio Beizo of Jordan. I, I, I failed to mention, uh, was it, it Shadia Bezo Bezo? Yes, we can't pronounce it. Vince can't pronounce it. Paul Levesque can barely pronounce it. It's a, it's a whole deal. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, we are proud to be part of the Voices of Wrestling Network. Talk to you guys later. Bye-bye.